Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything, while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and in this episode, we're working with consultant Mott McDonald to highlight the potential for engineers to take a leading role in combating climate change. Like 15-year-old Greta Thunberg so eloquently and powerfully explained at the UN Climate Change Conference in December 2018, change is coming, whether we like it or not. Recent years have seen some of the most severe weather events of all time. Intense rainfall has brought extensive fluvial and coastal flooding. Storms have battered homes and infrastructure and transport systems have failed. Power lines have been severed. Prolonged high temperatures have caused rivers to run dry, fires to burn, harvest to fail, pushing up food prices and putting pressure on water resources. In fact, the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction says that the cost of climate-related disasters has skyrocketed over the past two decades, costing an estimated $2.25 trillion between 1998 and 2017. And furthermore, the science tells us that without immediate action, this is going to get much, much worse. So what can we do about it? From our actions as individuals, to the way that we design, deliver and manage infrastructure, to corporate strategy, we all have a role to play. And as we'll see in this episode, small changes can make a big difference. This isn't a thing for the future. This is a thing for now. It's a thing that is impacting people and the planet on a daily basis all around the world. No area, no one or nothing is immune from the impacts of climate change. This is David Viner. He's a climate change scientist and the global practice leader in climate resilience at Mott MacDonald. He's also a contributor to the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the IPCC. We've been studying climate change now for over 40 years, looking at the impacts of human activity on the climate system. We've known about the background science for maybe 150, 170 years with John Tyndall in the 1860s. We are now in a position in the late 
part of the 2010s that we are witnessing at first hand now, regularly around the world, the impacts of climate change. And it's these impacts that after years of negotiation led the international community to come together and commit to a global plan to prevent the world's temperature from rising more than two degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial average. Better known as the Paris Climate Agreement, this landmark deal was signed by 195 countries in 2015. Two degrees is critical. If the average temperature rises beyond this, we reach the point of no return and further warming will occur irrespective of what humanity does to control it. The IPCC, which is part of the United Nations, is charged with giving an objective scientific view on climate change, which includes reporting on global progress on meeting the Paris Agreement objectives. Its latest report showed that time is running out to prevent runaway climate change, And four years on from the Paris Agreement, it's urged the world to strive for a lower limit of 1.5 degrees centigrade, only half a degree warmer than today. And that's because constant improvements in climate science indicate that the environmental and human stresses of a two degree future will be more severe than previously thought. The work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of which I'm an author for the current report, has stated that we, need, we have to act in the next 12 years to start reducing emissions of greenhouse gases to below current levels and to start reducing them dramatically. So by the middle of this century, within the next 30 years, we hit what we call net negative. That is, we are taking up more carbon dioxide in the terrestrial biosphere and the oceans than we are emitting. This effectively means setting a budget, a budget for carbon dioxide emissions. So we want to meet Paris, the Paris Agreement, keep global temperatures below 2 degrees and if possible 1 degrees, 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial. We only have a certain amount of oil, coal and gas we can burn and that is a lot less than our reserves. So it's no, not a case of saying let's just use what we've got, we've got to use a considerable, a, a very small percentage of what's left in the ground in terms of the coal, oil and gas reserves and also the, the contributions that come from land use change, agriculture, production of meat deforestation etc as well and if we don't if we don't meet the paris agreement and we don't keep to those targets we go into what we what the scientists call dangerous climate change above two degrees celsius we have ascertained that many of the major climate systems and terrestrial biosphere systems and oceanic systems will go into irreversible dangerous climate change at two degrees above pre-industrial warming, it's likely that most of the world's coral reefs will be severely impacted. They're already under a great deal of stress, with sometimes up to 80% of them being impacted by coral bleaching events. Above two degrees, we hit things like permafrost melting, Amazon dieback, changes in the large-scale ocean systems, changes in large-scale atmospheric systems. This will cause dramatic changes to the world in which we live. Dying coral reefs and permafrost melting sounds remote, perhaps. Too remote to matter to us? But that's far from the case. The intricate interconnections and dependencies of natural and human systems mean that effects ripple far and wide. And there's a danger that a ripple can turn into a cascade. As David explains, limiting climate change means making a major global transition. And we've all got a role to play in that. But are engineering companies and those working in the built environment doing enough? David notes that in his IPCC working group of 300 authors, considering the adaptation and impacts of climate change, he's the only contributor from a professional services company. Everyone else is an academic, and he says that more input from the private sector, more practitioners, more engineers, is needed across the IPCC reporting groups. 
and it's important that practitioners and the commercial sector are involved in the writing of those reports. Uh, they're the ones providing the solutions. The academics help us understand what the issues are and what the solutions can be, but it's a practitioner community and the commercial organisations that are actually delivering the solutions on the ground to change the world from our high carbon intensive world to a net zero carbon world, but also to ensure that we produce a resilient society and environment as well. David is not the only one calling for more action from engineers. In 2017, a paper from researchers at the University of Leeds, published in the journal Science and Engineering Ethics, called on engineering institutions to make their members responsible for acting to manage risks related to climate change in the way that they do for safety. My name is Rob Lawler and together with Helen Morley, we wrote a research paper called Climate Change and Professional Responsibility, a Declaration of Helsinki for Engineers. In this paper, Helen and I argue that professional institutions in engineering should develop a declaration of climate action, which would be similar to the Declaration of Helsinki, which was developed by the medical profession. The Declaration of Helsinki, first developed in 1964, reformed practices in medical research on human participants. It made the case that medical professionals were morally bound to put the welfare of the individual above the interests of science and those funding it. They had a social duty of care. It held physicians to a higher standard of ethical practice than was required by law. And notably, it was created by the profession itself as a tool for self-regulation. Rob and Helen say that engineers should create a similar declaration and take the lead in going beyond legal requirements to address climate change. Their paper looks to research done by Richard Heed in 2014, identifying the historic causes of climate change. Heed singled out carbon emissions from the extraction and use of hydrocarbons, oil, gas, coal, including infrastructure. Lawler and Morley argue that engineers' influence and control in these industries has significant potential to reduce global carbon emissions. If, if a declaration of climate action can set regulations on what engineers could do that would impact on those industries, then that would have um, the potential to significantly reduce emissions that come from those industries. It's a bold move to say there should be specific prohibitions, but faced with irrefutable science that shows particular activities cause harm, it's hard to disagree. Should doctors willfully hurt patients? Should engineers knowingly endanger society? Hold on, it's not that simple. During the course of the research, the paper was presented at the Royal Academy of Engineering, where a key objection was that engineers are constrained by the requirements of their employers. As part of this project, Helen and I presented an early version of this paper at the Royal Academy of Engineering, and that was one of the most common objections. It's very idealistic, but at the end of the day, we're constrained by our employers. And my view is that that just fails to understand what it is to be a professional or what it is to be a profession. Because the idea of a profession is you have standards that you have to meet. And the reason that you have those standards is because you're trying to preserve a standard that you don't want to be distorted by commercial pressures and so on. So actually, what we argue in the paper is when engineers say, look, we're constrained by what our employers will allow us to do, it should actually be the other way around. It should be that employers are constrained by what professional engineers are willing to do. Engineering institutions are the keepers of professional standards. Lawler says that the response from them on his proposal for a declaration of climate action has been disappointing. 
despite the fact that their codes of conduct recognise members' responsibilities to the environment, society and future generations. The Engineering Council and the Royal Academy of Engineering have a shared statement of ethical principles. And one of the key things it emphasises is that engineers do have a duty to future generations. Um, so you know, as long as you're not a climate change denier, then you know, it immediately follows that you have responsibilities in relation to climate change. One of the key principles in this, says Lola, is leadership. So recognising that as a profession, they have an important public role to take a leadership role, being a positive um, influence within society um, in relation to issues that are relevant to engineering. So based on those, those principles, we just think it follows very naturally that um, the engineering professions should be being more proactive than they are in terms of doing something concrete to combat climate change as opposed to kind of just rhetoric. Being proactive in its approach to climate change is something that consultant Mott McDonald has been working on for several years. It employs 17,000 people around the world and sees that it has a global role to play in cutting carbon emissions and also protecting society from the effects of future climate change. Global Head of Climate Resilience Ian Allison says that being proactive means cultural change. And the sort of culture change that we're talking about has to start in the boardroom. We're implementing an extensive climate resilience initiative funded by the group board and this runs throughout the company top to bottom across our sectors and across all our regions and we are in the process of reporting climate risk and responsibility assessments into our corporate decision making framework. But what does this really mean? Mott McDonald works on a huge range of projects all over the world so is it going to re-evaluate its work in the energy sector for example because it's putting the climate first? So absolutely, we're currently undergoing quite a major reassessment of our energy strategy, as we do with all our strategies year on year. Particularly for the energy sector, this is quite distinct at the moment. For example, in our Mission Possible report, we highlighted that by 2040, all coal-fired power stations would need to be closed if the requirements of the Paris objectives are to be met. As part of the pathway, there is an increasing recognition of the need to decarbonize the energy industry. But yet still, we have to facilitate improved access to energy that often underpins social and economic growth. For us, as practitioners, this means that our carbon-intensive projects increasingly need group board approval, moving away from devolved decision-making and devolved responsibilities. And such projects are challenged internally on their response to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, to their environmental impact assessments and to climate risk assessments themselves. We challenge ourselves increasingly in response to climate change. This means that the company is saying no. Not every time, but certain types of carbon intensive projects are off limits these days. And employees all over the world are having different types of conversations internally with their clients and with other organisations affected by their work. Rebecca Marsh is an engineering geologist for Mott McDonald in Singapore and a climate champion for her sector, which is transport. And the reason I wanted to become a, a champion for the Climate Resilience Initiative is that I really feel that um, our industry is at the forefront of creating solutions and um, really driving the change in resilience and spreading the, spreading the message. 
Southeast Asia's multi-billion dollar transport investment plans in cities with no historic public transport provide lots of opportunity to address whole life carbon and resilience. So the conversation is uh, definitely changing. Depending on which clients we speak to, some, some of the investment banks are already you know, thinking very far ahead in terms of climate resilience. This is another driver. Investor pressure is growing. The causes and effects of climate change are increasingly seen by the investor community as threats to financial stability and global prosperity. They want to see the industries that they support acting responsibly. So what's going to drive more action from engineers? Will it take external intervention by investors or citizens' actions group to spur them on? And who within the engineering profession should take the lead? I believe that everybody can be a carbon manager. So we go into organisations all over the world and try and empower the designers and the engineers to really be innovative. This is Mott McDonald's carbon management team leader, Mark Crouch, who explains that there's several crunch issues that every organisation has to address, from risk awareness, governance and metrics, to leadership, cultural change and setting standards for suppliers. Key to these, he says, is ensuring that businesses understand that carbon emissions and climate change are threats to their business in the long term. To address this effectively, businesses need a historic baseline to measure against, goals to aim for and systems for measuring performance. From here, this means developing commercial solutions that incentivise and enable performance for the company and its supply chain. And to do that, strong leadership's crucial. The message that climate change matters must come from the very top of the company at board level. And that has to be built into the vision, values and policy of the company. And that will drive the necessary changes in culture and communication to develop effective behaviours and skills to address climate change. Mark says a long-term approach is needed to achieve major carbon savings, like those being achieved by National Grid in the UK, which is on track to achieve a 60% capital carbon reduction by the end of 2020 compared to 2015, and it's aiming to reduce its carbon footprint by 80% by 2050. But the key thing for any organisation is getting started. And when we work with clients over the long term, it's really about embedding processes and tools, changing the culture, and making this business as usual. When you see the results and you see organisations change in this way to actively embed carbon management into everything they do, it can be really satisfying. Every organisation that acts to reduce its carbon emissions helps the world balance its carbon budget and takes us closer to achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement. From a corporate level to a city level, change is coming. Claire Wildfire is the global practice leader for cities at Mont McDonald and is an expert in sustainable energy systems. As more and more people move into cities, this is therefore where most of the effective action on climate change can happen. And those solutions won't be isolated to particular cities because in an urban area, uh, the cause and effect is interlinked between different elements of infrastructure. So for example, transport planning affects the carbon footprint of the city. And it reminds me actually of the US space race. So that declaration was get to the moon within a generation. With that ambition, it wasn't just spaceflight innovation that, that happened. It was actually, so things like textiles and nutrition, those sorts of innovations were advanced as well at the same time to achieve that overall goal. The declaration of such a challenge as in the 1.5 degrees C is 
is similar, I guess, in that there are multiple elements that we need to solve to get to, to resolve that challenge. Claire says some amazing carbon reduction innovations are already in development and she expects the climate challenge to stimulate more in all spheres of industry and the economy. And part of her role is to understand how to apply best practice from one part of the world to another. There's a brilliant example of a solution called aquifer thermal energy storage and it's an example of interseasonal thermal storage which I find so exciting. It's such a beautiful elegant solution in engineering terms. So effectively you take heat out of the buildings in summer, you store it in the ground and you give it back to the buildings in winter. It does require the right type of aquifer and the system works by having two boreholes that are some distance apart. So you start off in summer by passing water from what becomes the cold borehole. You pass it through the building where it picks up the summertime heat and therefore cools the building. And then you put that water into what then becomes the warm borehole. And then in winter, you reverse the system. So you're using the warm borehole water, passing it through the building to heat the building. And then that water that's then depleted of heat, you put into the cold borehole. And then over several years, the system, assuming your heating and cooling is in balance, you end up with a very well-balanced system. The great thing about that is it's not only energy saving, but actually on uh, the economics perspective, you can charge both for the provision of heating and for the provision of cooling, and you're using the same energy. So that's why it's so exciting from both a technical and a financial perspective. This can reduce a building's energy requirement for heating and cooling by 50% over a year, and it's not the only energy-saving measure that the company is designing. This is some work that we did for the government of Abu Dhabi, where we investigated using the thermal inertia properties of buildings to reduce energy demand. Thermal inertia is a measure of the speed at which a material responds to changes in temperature. Buildings with high thermal inertia respond slowly. For a while, they remain cool when the temperature rises outside and also remain warm when the mercury falls. We investigated with some trial buildings the implications of turning down the the air conditioning and seeing the effect on the occupants. And it turned out that you can turn down the air conditioning during the hottest part of the day by 50% for up to four hours without the occupants noticing. And that's because of the ability of the building materials to retain the cooling. Claire says that this alone can reduce overall energy requirements by up to 15%. Both examples relate to forms of low-carbon cooling, and that's really important because the IPCC predicts that the increase in demand for air conditioning will be something like 33-fold by the year 2100. So we really have to find ways to mitigate the likely increases in air conditioning requirement. The significant thing about these engineering innovations is that they're repeatable globally. This innovation and the ability to replicate, adapt and scale up has got to be a solution to the climate change challenge. As we've heard in this episode, time is running out for human beings to change their actions and prevent catastrophic climate change. And as the clock ticks down, frustration is building among younger generations that have the most to lose. The response to this from Mott McDonald is two-pronged. Internal, ensuring that as a business it puts climate change at the heart of corporate decision-making, and external, 
advising clients on carbon reduction and climate resilience, which means having different conversations with both existing and new clients. The more organisations, institutions and businesses that undertake this kind of change, the closer the world will get to keeping climate change to under two degrees. And let's not forget, at the heart of all of those organisations, institutions and businesses are people like you and me. What's our professional duty of care? And what can we individually do to make a difference? This is a journey. It's a journey of change. But this journey will enable achievement of the 2C pathway and will deliver increased resilience to infrastructure and to society as a whole. There's some great knowledge and support available online and we'll put links to that in the show notes, including the Infrastructure Carbon Review, which set out the commercial and environmental and social benefits of cutting carbon, and PAS 2080, the first international standard for managing infrastructure carbon, which provides a framework for how to do it. We'll also provide a link to the paper by Rob Lawler and Helen Morley, Climate Change and Professional Responsibility, which calls for the declaration of climate action from engineering institutions. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media, hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne. Special thanks to Mott MacDonald, the University of Leeds and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Produced by John Young, edited by Andrew Melius. Fact-checking by Rian Owen, and Rory Harris is the executive producer. Theme tune by JM Sounds with additional music by Pond5, and we'll be back in two weeks with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app, which really helps others to hear about us, or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters, or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Reddit. Read more about us online at rebe.media.